Well, we, we sang that last song that we sang for, for a reason, particular, ancient words. I mean, here we are, we gather together, we, 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 we come together and we, we open up a book. We turn to writings that are 2,500 years old. And what does that have for us today? What could it possibly have for us to do today? These ancient words. And uh, yet, the book of Daniel as a whole, especially the uh, first half of the book, the, the narrative, the story section, the, the, uh, the historical record of Daniel from when he's a young man to when he's an elderly man in Babylon, it's a story of how to live as a faithful stranger. How to live as a faithful stranger, how to live in faith, in exile, in faith among a people who do not share your faith. Now, does that question about how, whether you're a young man, whether you're in, you're in the prime of your life, middle age, whether you are, I know some of you teens thought middle age, prime of your life, what are you talking about? But Okay, and, and, or whether you're all the way in your senior years and you know you don't have a lot of those years left. Does a book that would speak to you directly about how to live as a faithful stranger, how to live as one faithful, not only full of faith in God, but faithful to those around you who do not share that faith, who, um, who are of a very different worldview because they don't know the one who, who made the world and all things in it. Daniel's got a lot to tell us about uh, how to live as faithful strangers toward others and for others. So this is a book about life in the Babylonian exile. And we first meet Daniel in, in chapter 1. He and four of his friends, they're, they're, they're teenagers, and uh, they are, the first episode has them sticking together, encouraging one another in their own choice of how they're going to live before their God in this stranger and ungodly environment. How will they continue to live in their faith? And it's, it's critical that they're together. You see that in chapter 2 when they reinforce one another. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, you know those three, maybe a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel and his three friends, they're, they're, they're a great example of a small group. It's one of the reasons that when we couldn't meet together as church, we said we've got to be together. And so when we were able to in the phases, we, we uh, started uh, about 20 small groups all around the area. Uh, we, we come together as whole church. We, we also want to be together as church in your homes, small groups, home, home groups. And, and the purpose there is to encourage one another as well as to be a place within each neighborhood where you can, you can have the opportunity to invite neighbors to come along with you, that you can share the hope the faith that we have with others around us, helping them through a very difficult time. And, and just, just recently, I, I heard a great story out of one of those small groups, and I said, this we got to share with the church. So, so Chris Cox, there you are. I invited Chris to come up and just, just uh, sometimes it seems like, oh, for this reason or that, things get in the way and the group's not happening, and yet right in the middle of some of that might be just when God is working. So Chris, would you tell that story you told me? I got a cool mask, don't I? Can you hear me? I know it looks like I'm getting ready to rob a stagecoach on a black and white movie, but uh, <laughs> you, you should see me with my cowboy hat. It's pretty good. 
Um, yeah, I had the opportunity to share a story with, uh, with Bob. I think I've maybe shared with some other men in our, our church as well as we've been together. And I hope, I hope that everyone in here is a part of a small group or you've had the opportunity to be a part of a small group. Does anybody know that you're a part of a small group? Are you attending small groups? Can I see, see hands? A few hands out there. So if, <laughs> if, if you didn't raise your hand and somebody sees you didn't raise your hand, there, there's somebody you should be contacting and asking. So back when we talked about starting small groups, I think Bob and I specifically talking about, I said, what a great opportunity to invite neighbors that we think probably don't go to church. Those are the people, of course, we want to reach out to while we're encouraging one another. And so we, we did that, and our immediate neighbors haven't yet uh, come alongside of us. I can tell some interest there, and so we, we pray about that. And we've been getting together as our small group and still encouraging one another. The energy has been phenomenal, literally phenomenal. Um, and the Holy Spirit was working with my wife, and as she was in contact with somebody who didn't live exactly next to us, they were a little bit further away, and she contacted them just through daily life and invited them to our small group, and boom, they're there. And immediately accepted in our small group and even acts like a family member practically already within just a couple of meetings. And this is a person who is a wanna believer. They're seeking. I mean, how often are we looking for the person who's seeking? right? It's easy to find the person who doesn't want to listen to you, but to find the person seeking. And we had the opportunity just recently to be even a smaller group, right? Life happens. Some of our regular members had to be out and away, and, but this, this guest, this wanna believer was here with us. And as a result, we were able to talk about much more intimate, I'll say foundational things about the, uh, the theology and our, and our God's word. And when, we're, when you're together as a small group like that and, and people feel accepted and, they, and we really, really emphasize there are no stupid questions. I won't say the same thing about answers, but there are no stupid questions. And they, they really embrace that. And because of that, we're able to talk about questions like that come up, why does Jesus say I have to die? I'm sorry, where did you read that? In Mark. I know that, I know where it's actually. Caitlin, my daughter, was helping me immediately as we're talking. She tells me exactly what verse it is, and we pull that up. Let's talk about what it means to die to yourself and the relief that comes over the person as they suddenly realize, oh, that's what it means. Well, I have another question. Why, why did the rich man just walk away? Why did Jesus tell him he couldn't, he couldn't that he had to sell everything? Let's, let's explain. Let's, let's tease that. Let, let's just unravel that. And, and so we understand the sense of relief and understanding that, that someone has. And now we're talking about how do I receive the Holy Spirit? And to be able to do that in small groups, I, I, I think I, I mentioned it to Bob on the first day after the first really, really small meeting that we had. I said, for the first time in a long time, I felt useful. I felt like I was able to talk to someone who really what I was saying was maybe the first time they'd ever heard it, and it made a difference. And so although our small groups are absolutely so that we as a body can come together and continue to encourage one another at a time when we weren't able to come together corporately in, in this building, it's also a fantastic opportunity to be looking for that want a believer, to bring them into your group and let them know that they're, they're safe and that they're loved and that you're there to answer the questions for them. And that's the opportunity for someone else yet to come 
to know the Lord. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Light is easily, most easily seen in darkness. And if you want to describe this time of a pandemic as darkness, it's the opportunity for our light to shine to others. So I would encourage you to do that. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. The, um, the, our, our small group's an opportunity where, where uh, you can go to invite others around you. You have the opportunity to bring them into God's family in contact with those who are God's family. Jesus himself said, come and see. Come and be with me. You have that opportunity as well as Jesus to invite people. Just come and be with us and see a little more about what our faith is all about and as well as to be building one another up as followers of Jesus. So this... Um, as we step into, in the book of Daniel, you see that. Daniel, with his friends, together, they are walking in faith, living as faithful strangers. We see Daniel in his, in his youth as a young man. We see him in, in, in the prime of his life, in middle age. You see him elderly. And chapter 5 gets into those elderly years. And I want to talk a little bit more about that next week. But first of all, in Daniel chapter 5, there are questions that people have. There's, there's opportunities that we can give, and yet sooner or later, opportunity runs out. Daniel chapter 5 is that time when time runs out. Time has run out on a king named Belshazzar's willful rejection of God's glory, God's sovereignty, and yet God's word continues. God's word is true. God's word endures. Those ancient words are, as we sang, forever true. The time for anyone's rejection of God's word will run out. It's not just an endless time that whenever they might choose, maybe they can change their mind. Time will run out, but God's word will be true. God graciously gives us time to believe, but sooner or later, time will run out. There's a key encouragement from the story I want us to catch, as well as a key takeaway, a warning that we must not miss. Let's jump in, Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, and we start right in as we, we begin reading chapter 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And the first question we've got to ask is, well, who is King Belshazzar? Not just because we have not ran into him yet in the book of Daniel, but historians had never run into King Belshazzar. This is one of those places, you, you meet him here, you meet him in Daniel chapter 8, because he times one of his prophecies there too, the, the, um, the reign of King Belshazzar. And yet, the historical scholars for centuries have said, you see, this is why you cannot believe this book and you cannot believe Daniel's writings. is because there was no King Belshazzar in, in Babylon. Everybody knows that the king of Babylon's run like this. You have, first of all, the founding king, um, Nebuchadnezzar's father. And then you have Nebuchadnezzar. He was the great king of Babylon. Nobody greater than him. Probably no king in the world before or since as great and as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar was in his empire. His son rules for just two years. His son is an evil, licentious, and just he just does whatever he wants. And he lasts two years. He's assassinated by his brother-in-law. So watch your brother-in-laws. He's assassinated by a brother-in-law. His brother-in-law is, 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 is older than he, only lives for four more years. He dies, and he leaves the kingdom to his son, but his son is quite young, and he's killed after nine months by, get this, 
another brother-in-law. Well, no, he's not assassinated by the brother-in-law. There's a coup, there's a whole group, and then they choose who should be the next king, and they put the finger on this guy, Nabonidus, because he is a brother-in-law to the previous king. He's also married to one of King Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. And so, I don't know what, if there aren't, there apparently aren't any other King Nebuchadnezzar's sons, but there are a couple of daughters that were married to people, and that's a connection to the great king that gives some legitimately to his claim. So, so, so Nabonidus is the king of Babylon when Persia and Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon. Everybody knows that. King Cyrus's records also relate to Nabonidus, king of Babylon, whom he does not kill when he conquers Babylon. But he, he puts him sort of under house arrest, and he actually puts him in charge of a region at some point in the future. So everybody knows through history, Nabonidus, who is Belshazzar? Can't believe this. Daniel, whoever wrote this, is just making up new, new personalities and kings in the line of the story. Until about 100 years ago, the Nabonidus cylinder was discovered. And the Nabonidus cylinder... Directly, there, there, there are about four of these, and these are the chronicles of King Nabonidus, some of his records, and in there he specifically mentions his son, Belshazzar, whom he put in charge of Babylon when he was in campaign, campaigns out to the west, almost immediately when he took the throne. After three years, he makes Belshazzar a full co-regent, the second ruler of the kingdom, the king in Babylon. And the last 10 years of his reign, in fact, Nabonidus is nowhere near Babylon. Belshazzar is in charge. Belshazzar, actually, actually Nabonidus, in this, in this one script where he's, where he's describing his rebuilding of temples, that's what he's doing, he's rebuilding these pagan temples out west, and he offers a prayer, he offers a prayer for his son Belshazzar, and take note of this, it's going to be important in the story. As for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring, instill reverence for your great Godhead in his heart. Belshazzar needs reverence, he says, and may he not commit any God-related mistake. Oh, watch that in the story. And may he be full with a life of plentitude. Okay, keep, the, keep, keep Nabonidus' prayer in mind for his son. It's, it's good to pray for your sons, by the way, and your daughters. And uh, yet, be, be careful who you pray to so that your prayer might be answered. So then, with Nabonidus and his record that he gave the kingdom to his son Belshazzar, whom history forgot, in fact, a hundred years later, the Greek historians of the day knew nothing of Belshazzar. Belshazzar dies the night of Daniel chapter 5, and he's canceled. He's canceled out of the culture. Nobody hears from him again. He has been wiped off of Google. All of his social media has been erased. It's as if Belshazzar doesn't exist, only, only Nabonidus. Cyrus gives Belshazzar no credit or accounting at all. But anyway, we now know that the record of the kings of Babylon, let me update our list. We have Nebuchadnezzar and Marduk and Nelgazar and, and the young lad who doesn't last, and then Nabonidus and Belshazzar, his son, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, co-regent with his father those last many years. Now, in the timing of the book, Daniel chapter 1, 2, and 3 happened pretty quickly in the first few years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, first few years of the boys in Babylon. There's a 30-year 
span in between chapter 3 and chapter 4, roughly 30 years. We don't know exactly because it's not dated. And then there's another roughly 30 years between uh, the, the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, the king who becomes a beast in chapter 4. There's 30 more years between that and all of these other kings, and that we do have a record of from when, when King Nebuchadnezzar dies to when Belshazzar dies and Babylon is captured in the reigns of these other guys. So there's the setting. We've moved ahead 30 years and 30 more years from the earlier chapters. And now we get again, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, what you don't know in the story at this point, you'll hear it at the end, is Cyrus's army has surrounded Babylon. But Babylon has a huge wall. Babylon has the Euphrates River that runs right through the city. It goes under one opening in the wall, completely fills that opening, impassable, goes out the other side. They have no worries of water. They have stocked the city full, knowing that Cyrus was coming. They could last for years inside that city, and nobody's going to get through that wall. They're not worried. In fact, to show his confidence, Belshazzar is hosting this feast. And to show his confidence in himself and his gods. Remember there was an earlier prophecy that Babylon was good, but Babylon would not last. Babylon was a great kingdom, but it would pass. There was the statue with the head of gold that was Babylon, but after there would be another kingdom. And after there would be another kingdom, and after there would be another kingdom. That, and Nebuchadnezzar responds to that and says, no, I'm going to make a, a, a statue, an image completely out of gold. Babylon will never end. But Babylon is going to end. Belshazzar seems to be again resisting God's word that Babylon must come to an end. He's, he's asserting himself and his glory, his greatness, and his confidence in himself. And his gods. Because in verse 2, he, 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 when he tasted the wine, and tasted doesn't just mean he had a little sip. Tasted meant he'd been drinking the wine. He was under the effects of the wine. And he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. He's borrowing on Nebuchadnezzar's greatness, Nebuchadnezzar's conquest. Belshazzar has never conquered anything. He's never had a victory in battle. He runs the kingdom from the city. And he, he commands those to be brought, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. They brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. The king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. That's repeated. That's important. That is going to bug God. That is going to incite his wrath. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron. Remember that statue? Gold and silver and bronze and iron. Okay. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall, let's not get ahead. Okay. Belshazzar. God's ancient word is confirmed. The funny thing about Belshazzar the very thing, people say two things about Daniel. Daniel is not accurate as a book. It can't be trusted. It wasn't written when it was written. They, they, they have names in there like Belshazzar that nobody's ever heard of. And because of the details we're going to run into later, I'll talk more about this in chapter, chapter 8 or so, the, because of those details that are there, Daniel must have been written several hundred years later than it claims to be. It must have been written no, early, no earlier than 200 B.C. And yet, by 450 B.C., nobody had heard 
of Belshazzar. He was forgotten in history until Nabonidus Chronicle was dug up. Nobody remembered him, none of the Greek historians. So that Daniel mentions him, first of all, is vindicated that Daniel is accurate, but it also vindicates that Daniel is early. Daniel had to have been written before 450 B.C. because by 450 B.C., nobody knows of Belshazzar any longer. He was canceled. That's why that's important. God's ancient words are forever true. They can be counted on. It can be relied on. And here, God will honor his holy, sanctified vessels. Men may, on, may dishonor them, but God will honor his temple. God will honor his vessels. And you, believers in Jesus, are his temple. You are his holy vessels. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he talks about in a great house and precious vessels. Vessels that are made for honorable uses that are set aside as holy, useful to the master. And when they are misused and mistreated, God's own anger rises, and he will vindicate himself and you. So immediately when this happens, that's immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Why opposite the lampstand? Well, Imagine, this is the banquet hall inside the, inside the castle. It's evening, and uh, um, so it's, it's dark outside. It's, it's October, and uh, uh, there's not a lot of windows anywhere inside the banquet hall. And the lamps they have are not bright lighting, but there's no LED lighting yet. They're, they are oil lamps. And so there's more light where the lamps are. And so on the wall, opposite the lampstand, is the brightest, the most well-lit, the place where everybody will see what it is that God has to say. This is important. God wants them to see it, although they don't know what it means. And there is, have you heard the expression, this is a great end, by the way, have you heard the expression, I saw the writing on the wall? Because it was opposite the lampstand. Everybody saw, on the brightest part of the room, everybody saw the writing, the handwriting on the wall. Whenever you hear that statement, that's an opportunity maybe. Look for that opportunity to say, you know, that's a, that's a cool statement. You, do you realize, have you ever heard a story where that statement comes from, the handwriting on the wall and what it means? Because here it is. God, in a, in, a, in a dark time, God in a time of great confusion when nobody knows what the answers are, God has got something to say. And it better not be missed because time has run out. Okay, God's graffiti. What is it that God's write, op, writes opposite the lampstand? Let's look at God's graffiti on the wall, okay? Oh, no, no, wait, sorry. That's, that's not God's graffiti. That, that's Portland. Yeah, that's Portland too. Next one. There we are. There's God's graffiti. Okay, now I know in the, in the, in the, in the actual happening, it was that the finger writes on the wall and maybe even engraves right into the stone wall. We don't know. But I thought, well, well the, the medium of the day is painted graffiti, so let's go with that. And here is what is written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. What does it mean? I know some, some Bible versions will say a parson, and that's because the, the U is actually a vowel, which is a connective. It's, a, it's an and. So the many, many, tekel, and parson. Okay, so these four words are written on the wall. And just like in chapter 2, just like in chapter 4, the king has no idea what this is about. 
and he's terrified. He knows this is a supernatural encounter, and his gods haven't done something like this. He doesn't know what's going on, but he knows it's big. And so he is worried, he is scared, and he calls his counselors. Time to drag out the Chaldeans and the astrologers and the soothsayers and the magicians, the enchanters, and anybody who might know something. But Daniel's not called. We'll see why in a moment. And they look at it, and they don't have any idea. They can see it, too. They don't have to be told the dream. They can see it right there on the wall, but they don't know what it means. It's ambiguous. It's unclear. It's apparently written in Aramaic, which was a known language of the day, but they don't know what it means. They don't even know where to start. As funny as I was reading various commentators about what this might mean and, and what the... What the um, expanded possibilities were. I felt like I was standing among the Chaldeans and the enchanters and all these possibilities and nobody knows for sure. We've got nothing clear to tell the king. But then mom remembers Daniel. The queen comes in and the queen is the queen mother. The queen is, is Nabonidus's um, wife. Belshazzar's mother, who speaks to Belshazzar of Nebuchadnezzar, his father. And we know his father is not Nebuchadnezzar. His grandfather is Nebuchadnezzar. But the ancients often would refer to grandfathers, great-grandfathers, even ancient ancestors like Abraham as Abraham, our father. So it's not unusual at all. But when you see father there, remember grandfather. Your grandfather. Grandfathers ought to have an influence. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar had an influence on Belshazzar, but Belshazzar picked and chose the stories of his grandfather that he would pay attention to. And unfortunately, he didn't pay much attention to this one. But the queen mother reminds him, there, there is a man. There is a man in your kingdom, verse 11, in whom the spirit of the holy gods, or that plural can also be, it's Elohim, it can be translated as singular as well. It could be the holy God. We're not sure what she was saying. There's a man in your kingdom, though, who is in, who, in whom is the spirit of the holy God or gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers. You've called all these guys. Call Daniel. Daniel's able to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. And, buddy, you've got a problem. And so, she says, let Daniel be called, and he will tell you what this means. And so, Daniel was brought in before the king. Daniel crashes the party. Not that Daniel comes in uninvited. He's invited. But when Daniel comes in and what Daniel's got to say, the party crashes. The party's over. There's nothing more to celebrate. Daniel is brought in. The king answered and said to Daniel, you're that Daniel, the exiles of Judah, who my grandfather the king brought from Judah. He said, who, do, who you are? Who do you think you are? Are you that, that exile that was brought here? What standing do you really have? It's like the proud young king is putting Daniel in his place before he says anything. Just letting him know where he stands. But if you're able to give answers, well, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to make you somebody. I'm going to make you the third ruler of the kingdom. I'm going to give you a gold chain. I'm going to give you some bling. I'm going to give you a fine robe. Third ruler. Why does he offer him third ruler of the kingdom? Well, because Belshazzar is already the second ruler of the kingdom. So that's the highest position available. He's not going to give him his own job. So that's, that's the next thing he can give to anybody who can resolve this riddle. And now that is Daniel. 
Daniel's bold declaration as compared to this cowardly bravado of this royal pretender. Daniel, Daniel says, your rewards keep to yourself. Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. I will read the writing to the king, and I will make known to you the interpretation. But let me tell you a story. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your grandfather, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Yes, he was great because the most high God made him great. God gave that to him. God had a purpose, and God used him and his empire for God's own purposes with his own people and with all the world. And all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared him. Before whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his, Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down. The Most High God brought him down. From his kingly throne, the glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast. This is Daniel 4. And his dwelling was with the wild ox, donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And here's the punchline. And you, his son, his grandson, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house you have brought in. And he rehearses what it is that Belshazzar has done. This crucial, fatal mistake and misstep he has made against not only a God, but the God. You have not humbled your heart. You have, in fact, lifted yourself up against God and his word, what he has said, and so he says this to you tonight. Time has run out. You have disregarded God's mercy to Nebuchadnezzar that could have been extended to you. You have disregarded God's mercy. You have desecrated God's holiness in the vessels of his temple. You have denied God's truth, and the bill has come due. Yeah, Daniel crashed the party. And so that night, time ran out. Look at verse 24 as he begins to interpret now what this means. From his presence, the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed, carved into the wall. It's not going to be changed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, teko, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have, your days have been numbered, your time is up. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. Your time is up and you don't measure up. Parson or Perez, Parson is the plural form, Perez is the singular form, same word. Your kingdom is divided, is broken and given to the Medes and the Persians. Parson was chosen probably because it sounds like Persian, from Aramaic to Persian. The most tragic line there, you have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. You knew. 
You knew that the Most High God was true. You knew that His Word was true. That's why in your urgent hour you chose to make your own proud statement of rebellion and you just didn't get some nice glasses. You chose His golden vessels from the temple in Jerusalem saying, we took out Israel and the God of Israel once before. We don't, we're not afraid of His declarations tonight when it seems that maybe they're coming true. And now time has run out. You have thought too little of God and too much of yourself, and now your time is up. We all have something in common with Belshazzar in that we know all these things. At least we do now. We've heard these things now. We know what it is that God has done. We know, we know how God deals with those who are proud. Those who are, are proud and lift themselves up, God is able to humble. And that scares us a little. That concerns us because there are people we care about that we do not want to face a harsh humbling. We want them to turn easily toward God's mercy and his forgiveness that he holds out so freely. For anyone who will believe him and receive it. You may know all this, but has it softened? Has it humbled your heart toward Jesus God's Son, who himself, as Ryan so well put last week, that he himself was humbled in our place? So that if we humble ourselves before God in admitting to God our need for his son Jesus who dies in our place for our guilt, for our shame, for our sin, we believe in him as God's God's substitute for our guilt and our judgment. That he was humbled so that we might be exalted with him as God's own sons, daughters, children. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, Peter says, that he may exalt you in due time. And James repeats the same words. We know all this. Has it humbled our hearts before Jesus? And while you wait, and this could be true for salvation, it could be also true for the next step that God is calling you to take. He has pressed upon your heart because, because being a Christian is not merely about, yes, I believe in Jesus, I, I have been born again, I have a home with God and His Son for all eternity, I will be forever with the Lord, so that's all taken care of, I can just go on do whatever I want in life. No, it's all about now following Jesus. The, the call of discipleship is to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. The call of discipleship is to follow Jesus and those things that he has taught us to do, called us to do, that we might represent him, even be like him to a world who needs to know him. And if you're a Christian, I know this. I know there is something that God is calling you to do. There is a next step he puts before you to take. And how long will he wait? I'm reminded of a time I was in the Air Force. 
And I was explaining God was calling us to get out of the Air Force after nine years. We're almost halfway to a retirement. And yet God is clearly calling us out and to serve him in missions. And we ended up going to Southern Africa. Many of you know that story. But, but along the way, there was a time when, when I'm explaining to my, to my boss, my supervisor, why it is that while the career is going so well, the Air Force seems to like me. I like the Air Force. We all get along fine. And yet it's time to go. And he says, Bob, do your 20 years. You will, you will have reached this rank of 20 years and then get your retirement, and then you can do your mission thing. I said, I'd love to. So I'd love to do that. But God is calling me now, today. I don't know if he's going to be calling me 10 years from now. How long? How long? We don't know when time runs out. Even in terms of an invitation to life in Jesus or in terms of an invitation to follow him in a particular call. Now God never forsakes his own. But there can be opportunities lost that we walk right on by. How long? How long before time runs out? Don't let time run out while you resist God's call upon you, God's invitation to you. There's an encouragement here all through the story of Belshazzar, even from his very identity, that God's word will be true whether you and I believe it or not. Whether we rightly esteem it or not, whether we fully appreciate it or not, God's word is true. It will be true. Ancient words, ever true. Changing me. Changing you. God's word is true. We don't make it true by believing it. Jesus is not sitting there wringing his hands. Oh, I, oh, please, I wish someone would believe in me. Won't you please believe in me? No. Jesus doesn't get his identity because we believe in him. He invites us to join him in his life and reign. He invites us to participate with us. But God's word is true. Nebuchadnezzar's dream from chapter 2 that there is a head of gold, there is an empire of Babylon, but it will come and there's another kingdom that comes after that and, Medo, and, and the Persians are at the gate. And after that there's another, there's another, but after that there is a kingdom established by the Son of God, the stone cut without hands that eliminates all worldly kingdoms. Sorry about that. It eliminates all worldly kingdoms and God's own kingdom is established and he will reign forever. God's word is true. That is our future. You can count on it. No matter what it looks like today. You know, Jeremiah 51 at the start of the captivity, when Daniel is a young man, well, now he's an old man, but when Daniel's a young man, Jeremiah 51 not only predicts the fall of Babylon, but predicts it in the midst of a party. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I will plead your cause and I will take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea, hang on to that, make her fountain dry, and Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, a horror, and a hissing. I don't know exactly what that is, but it doesn't sound good, does it? A heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing. I just love the poetry. While they are inflamed, I will prepare them a feast 
and make them drunk, that they may become merry, then sleep a perpetual sleep, a forever sleep, and not wake, declares the Lord. Time has run out. You know what happened that very night when Daniel says, and now time has run out. Cyrus has surrounded Babylon. But he can't get through the wall. He can't get over the wall. He can't get around the wall. So he places most of his army at the point where the river flows into the city. He, he appoints another division of his army at the point where the river flows out of the city. And then upstream, a few miles, he diverts the river, something that had been done once in the past by the Babylonians, he diverts the river, the Euphrates, into a swamp, turns the swamp into a lake. And while he does that with this canal, when the canal is breached back into the Euphrates and all the water is diverted, the level goes down to about the thighs of his soldiers waiting. And they've been told, when the water is low enough that you can get through, go. And they go and they swarm into the city. And if Belshazzar had not hosted a party that night, the officers and nobles would have been watching and would have been keeping track of what it was that Cyrus and his troops were doing. They would have been watching the gates, and there were other gates and, and, and securities that they could have closed. And they would have trapped the army within the walls, but at the river. But they weren't watching. They were partying. And the Persians came in and took the city Easily. And Belshazzar himself is killed that night and never heard from again. A perpetual sleep. All of us have an invitation to God's mercy. And none of us knows when the time is up. What we do know is now is. You know, there's language out of the, the rescue of God's people from Babylon. There's uh, out of that language that was used in the Old Testament for that rescue. Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he couples that with the call that he has given his church, you and I, as being his messenger, his ambassadors of the word of life, God's word of reconciliation, that we can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus God's Son. That, that he, he puts that together in this way. He says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is God's day of salvation. He, he says that to Christians. He says, don't receive the grace of God in vain for nothing, to no effect, that in ways that don't really change your life. Take the next step. And for those of you who wonder, what about me? Am I included in this? You have been extended an invitation into God's mercy. To have life, eternal life, forever life, in God's Son, Jesus, who gave himself in our place, died on the cross for our guilt, our shame. The one who had no sin took our sin for himself so that today could be your day of salvation. One of the things we have included in the service this morning is an invitation to the table. The, uh, when you came in, there were elements on the back. The cup and the bread are combined together in this one. We're, we're going to partake of that in just a moment. But first, I, I, I want to ask the worship team to come back up. Because I want us to pause and I want us to consider. What is today for me? Maybe today is 
my accepted day. Maybe today is the day when I am accepted by God because of faith in Jesus who loved me and died for me. Maybe today is the day of my salvation. I will say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Because what this table is, what this cup and this bread is, it's a, it's a, a very small remembrance of the Passover meal which became the last supper of our Lord with his disciples. And those who partook that night and those who have taken of these elements, this cup and this bread, unleavened bread since then, are declaring, yes, I believe God concerning Jesus who died for my guilt for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe him. I want to follow him. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you know Jesus as Savior or not, for some of you. I, I, I do know for many of you there is a next step in the question of, Lord, what would you have me to do? And he's been telling you, but you're not sure. You're not sure if you really want to take that next step. Can I trust him? You can trust him. But I want us to just reflect on that before we, so that we can take this cup together as a celebration that says, yes, I do believe God and his son Jesus. So let's pause and reflect on this next song. Sing this next song together first.